Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Today, we have, and I hope I say it okay, Alejandro Enrique Ferro, a.k.a. Judge Alex, presiding over Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. Judge Alex, the host of the long-running hit show Judge Alex at the CBS true crime hit Whistleblower, is in our house. What you may not know about the Cuban-American former Dade County Circuit Judge, lawyer, speaker, and author of Bench Book, a book and guide on closing arguments that is used by judges throughout Florida, is his journey. Judge Alex has lived in Florida his whole life after his family immigrated here from Cuba to flee Castro's communist regime. He worked his way through college and law school by working as a cop. Yep, law school, law school till 4 p.m., then like Batman, he morphed into the youngest Miami cop and worked all night. I have a very personal connection with Judge Alex. When I was a television agent, I sold his show to Fox and the rest is history. Judge Alex is a no-nonsense, outspoken personality who is a regular on all the news shows for his commentary. Married to Jane with two kids, we can't wait to delve in and hear more. He sure has a story to tell. Welcome, Judge Alex. Oh, thank you. That's a great intro. If I ever run for office, you're going to be my campaign manager. (laughs) You got it. She writes the best intros. Nobody does it better. So, Judge, yes. tell us something about your parents that would give us an idea of what you learned growing up. So my parents were hardworking individuals their whole life. My, my father wa- and my mother both worked for the Colgate-Palmolive subsidiary in Cuba and fled to the U.S. when Castro took power and started uh, his communist regime. And like all other immigrants who came from Cuba to the U.S., they had to leave everything behind. When you when you got to the airport, they would open your suitcase and they would rifle through there at anything of value uh, you couldn't take with you. They'd take your wedding rings right off your finger. After a while, they got wise to people trying to circumvent it and would take children behind a screen and undress them to see if they had money stuffed in their shorts or in their diaper. So you left literally with the clothes on your back and... Uh, Uh, just about whatever you could fit in your suitcase that was of no real value. So you, you literally left with the suitcase with the clothes on your back and whatever clothes you could fit in into your suitcase. Um, And my father who had been an executive in Cuba, his first job in the U S was unloading railroad cars, which I eventually did when he became many, many years later, the general manager of a, a paper company in Miami. And I can tell you that is the hardest job I have ever done. Those steel railroad cars in Miami's sun, uh, they must become like 140 degrees inside. I remember unloading those things at his, uh, at his office with his workers, and you would come out into the 95-degree Miami temperature, and it felt like it was 40 degrees because it was so hot in that car. 
But that was his first job, unload, actually unloading plantains from a railroad car, which I thought was ironic as heck, given that we had fled Cuba. And then uh, my mother's first job was working as a legal secretary for an attorney in Miami because she had the good sense to have learned English in Cuba. And so at lunchtime, she would run to a shoe store that hired her for just an hour to come in at lunchtime and sell shoes to make an extra buck. Uh, and that was kind of my exposure to the work ethic. You know, I knew my parents had had worked very hard, and through that hard work, they they clawed their way up to where we were middle class, comfortable, but certainly not wealthy. But we'd gone from getting by and eking out an existence to to a comfortable uh, lifestyle, and I think that that kind of ingrained in me the work ethic that I have. You know. The immigration experience is so specific and it informs a lot about who a person becomes. At 15, I was in survival mode. I was trying to figure out what class to skip the next day. I was trying to just survive. There was a lot that I didn't have access to, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed at the fact that you were 15 and had your first full-time job. Oh, I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that that's so strange. I think a lot of people get jobs at an early age, but well, maybe in my circle, you know, um, I, I think what was strange was how much I worked at 15. My, my job was I started. Uh, pumping gas at, you know, a full service gas station, which, you know, nobody remembers what those are anymore, but I, I was pumping gas and doing oil changes and, and lube jobs on cars. And, uh, you know, they taught me how to do all this. And I literally worked every day. I worked Monday through Sunday. And well, that, that's what I mean, a full-time job. That's, that's pretty, <laughs> I mean, we all have, we all have part-time gigs, but that's a full-time job. That's what I'm emphasizing. <laughs> yeah, that, you're, you're right about that. And I worked, I would go to school during the day, of course, and I'd get out of school at two o'clock and from three to 11 at night, I was pumping gas and doing uh, tire repair and whatever. And uh, it was literally, it was six days a week, but every other week it was seven. I worked every other Sunday and Sunday was a 12 hour day, eight in the morning to eight at night. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it was a lot because, you know, the next morning you were back in class, you had to get up and be in school at seven or seven thirty or whatever it was. And, and then you'd be back out working all night long. Um, by the time I was 17 years old, I was managing the gas station. And I think about that now, I would be the only one there until 11 o'clock at night carrying a wad of bills that was this thick you know how, you know how they fold them over oh, yeah. it was literally this thick because back then you know people had credit cards but most people paid cash and so i would you know today i would get robbed in a, in a minute you know with that much cash on me and there weren't any security windows or anything you literally walked out you pumped people's gas and you know they gave you a 20 and you pulled out that big wad and you yes. off the change and then at the end of the night i would close up, set the alarm, take all the cash and the receipts and drive to the owner's house and drop it off with them and go home, go to bed and go to school the next day. Uh, that was a 17. So now, of course, I look back and go, wow, that was uh, that was a, a little ahead of my time, I guess, because I wouldn't trust a 17 with all that cash. In the 
Even my my boss might not have had it all together upstairs. <laughs> you know, that brings up two things for me. One, my uh, I also pump gas, so we have something in common. So, and I under, I remember the wad of money and just flipping it out and just looking back on that. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And the other thing is that time. a completely different time. And the idea that you walked around with that money and then you went and handed it to somebody, man, that's crazy. I remember my brothers used to do um, night deposits. Right. And it was like. You know, it does. It seems like another world. So I definitely feel you on that one. Yeah. And then and then at 18, you earned your pilot's license. What's going on here, Judge? I did. I did. That was, that was kind of bizarre because the history on that is uh, my mother eventually left, you know, working for the lawyer that she worked for and uh, got a job at an airline and worked for a couple of different airlines uh, over the years. And back then, if you worked for any airline, one of the benefits you received was you were able to fly for free on any airline, not oh, just your own. So if you worked for Aeromex Aeromexico, you could fly for free on Delta or Pan Am or whoever. And so we we flew around quite a bit. We were we took trips to Europe and things like that even though we were, you know, relatively middle class, that benefit of being able to fly for taxes. I mean, I, I remember one time we flew Miami to uh, switch, no, to Denmark, Denmark to Switzerland, Switzerland to New York, New York to Miami. And it was $50 a person because we just had to pay all the taxes on it. And that was it. And so the one thing I did know was that I would get airsick badly. It, it didn't, I mean, one time I actually got sick while the plane was taxiing. The, the, <laughs> The flight attendant said she'd never seen that before. We hadn't even taken off, and I was already sick. So, you know, I always say, what kind of an idiot who gets that airsick thinks they're going to be a pilot, right? Well, this one, right? So I thought, that'd be really cool to fly. So when I graduated from high school, I went to a community college and started getting my pilot's license, and I got it, and I flew around. It cured me. Yeah. <laughs> you think you get airsick on a jumbo jet, Try flying a little Cessna 152 that goes like this all the time. So I'll spare you details of my training, but I got I got my pilot's license, and I still I loved it. It was really it was really fun to be up there flying your own plane and looking down at things that you know in Miami that I knew. Um, but I realized it wasn't a career I wanted. I, I didn't want to be always flying around across the country or the world and with family back home. So I just kind of chalked it up to a to a good hobby. And so I, wait, wait, Judge, I have to ask you. So you're flying around. It's you can make a career out of this, and you say, "I don't want this." What? what talk, talk a little bit about that process, because that that had to be some specific feelings or something that came up for you that just made you that clear. I, I don't know, because I don't, I don't, I don't really. I'm not very self analytical. Um, okay, I don't, I don't do things. I don't plan things really. I just okay. kind of, I, I always say I stumble through life. I do okay. something until I don't want to do it anymore. And I enjoyed flying, but for some reason I said, I, I don't think I want to do this every day of my life, you know, and, you know, be gone from home all the time. It just sort of okay. didn't appeal to me in that context. But I had, when I'd worked at the gas station, police officers would come in all the time. And my grandfather had been a police officer in Cuba. And uh, I had walked around when we were living 
in um, Little Havana or when, when I would visit him because he stayed living there when my parents moved in Little Havana section of Miami, which is where all the Cuban immigrants settled. And I would walk around with him and I'd see his name was Enrique Sierra. That's where my middle name comes from, but his name was Sierra, like the Sierra Nevada mountains. And I would see people go, Sierra, Sierra, and they come running up and they give him a big hug. And, and uh, you know, everybody knew him uh, and respected him. And every once in a while, somebody would come up and, and call his name and give him a hug. And as he walked away, he'd say, oh, that guy used to rob liquor stores with a gun. And that struck me as strange. And then another guy would come up and hug him. And as he walked away, he'd go, that guy used to be a really uh, renowned pickpocket. And, and I said, well, why do all these criminals like you. And he explained to me that under Batista's government, you know, Batista was a very brutal dictator, which is what opened the door to Fidel Castro. Um, but under his government, the police were also very brutal. And, you know, if they arrested somebody, they would beat them all the way to the police station. I mean, they, if they arrested you, they, you know, they'd kick your butt all the way to the police station. And my grandfather would never do that. My you know, grandfather was very by the book. Uh, in fact, it's it's what probably saved his life when Castro took over. But I mean, that's a that's a, a different story. And so everybody, including the criminals, respected him. And I saw that myself, and I admired that. So when police officers would come to the gas station, uh, naturally I had an admiration for them because of my grandfather. And I got invited. One of the most famous homicide cops in Miami um, invited me to uh, uh, go with him. Uh, with his group in City Miami Homicide Unit. And I was 17, and I rode with the City Miami Homicide Unit at, uh, during the midnight shift and saw all these crazy crimes, murders and stabbings and all this. And I just became really interested in it. And so when I decided I wasn't going to be a, uh, a pilot, then I set my sights on, on police work. Okay, I got to go back. So... The one thing that you said that I really want to highlight is the fact that that opportunity to pay $50 and basically travel the world, it sounds like it changed your life. And it's just so much uh, of an example of how having even a little bit of exposure can make a difference in someone's life. I mean, you're a working class family, but to be able to see something other than the limitations of what you had really sounds like it was quite the influence on you. Sure. Absolutely. Who wouldn't love to travel to other countries and see other cultures? And I mean, I guess if you if you've never experienced it, right. your, your mindset might be, well, what do I got to go over there for? You know, I, uh, yeah. I, I, I like America. But, you know, when you're a kid, you're not given that choice. It's, hey, we're going on a trip to Europe. And of course, you know, having been there, I appreciated it. I loved it. It was beautiful and different. And, you know, hearing all the different languages and seeing the different cultures. Yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. That's amazing. And then, you know, you were this young Cuban man with all these options and you chose police. And now it makes sense why, because it was ingrained in who you were and you had such a positive experience of who the police can be, especially with your grandfather having the experience he had in Cuba and then coming here. It all makes sense now. Because when I was reading this, I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you, when you, sure. Now, as I look back, of course, I've had a lot of options in my life, but I think the options came from my education. When you're a 17 year old getting out of high school, your options are based upon what you do going forward because you've just got a high school degree. 
yes, the whole world is open to you if you take advantage of it. And I believe get an education that becomes a platform to do other things. But if at 17, I decided like some of my friends to go lounge at the beach and, you know, just spend my days doing nothing except enjoying myself, my career options would have been very limited. When I ultimately decided to become a police officer, my uh, father and, and my mother both were supportive but concerned. Of course, it's Miami, and I'm literally 19 years old when I become a cop, the youngest cop in Miami, probably the youngest or one of the youngest in the entire state of Florida. So, you know, the advice my dad gave me was, listen, just don't quit studying because if you change your mind, you know, somewhere down the road, you're not going to have any options if you didn't get an education. But if you get an education and you stay as a police officer, it's just going to help you advance through the ranks. Uh, it's not going to hurt you. And it made sense. I personally thought I wanted to be a police officer the rest of my life. I loved it. And I didn't think I would want to do something else. But I couldn't argue with that advice. So I continued studying. And when I graduated my undergraduate degree, I just stumbled on into law school. Uh, okay, we're going back, Judge. We're not going that fast. Okay. <laughs> there's so many there's so many pieces here that are nuanced and so important. Sure. You know, your your father's advice. See, you're not analyzing, but I am. Um, and, and you know, that's what happens when you come on the show with therapists. You know, your father's advice was so powerful. This yeah. idea that, you know, he embedded the the language of options and education. That that was quite uh, an amazing piece of gold that you had in your hands that you put in your pocket and you use later on. You not only joined the police academy, you were, let's see, what was it? Uh, the most outstanding recruit. And, yes, I, and, yes. I, and I think it's right. Is that right? The most outstanding right. recruit. Yeah. And I, I think it's fascinating the language you use of, you know, I could have been like my other friends. Sorry, I'm trying to get this out without finding the humor. I could have been like my other friends lounging around on the beach having fun, which is what most people want to do at that age. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so it's funny your language that I could have done that, but instead I did this. And it's hard for me not to keep connecting that to the horrible experience your parents had emigrating here and everything that they went through and all the stories you knew and helped. I think that's significant. That's probably true. Yeah, that's probably it's probably my my work ethic from a very early age just driving me forward. Um, but but I did enjoy police work. I liked it when I rode with them. Um, I became a, a when while I was going getting my pilot's license, I became a dispatcher at, at the police department. So I was around police officers all the time, and you know developed that bond and liked it. So. When I decided not to be a pilot, um, I already had that attraction to police work from my grandfather. I'd been working around police officers. So I I said, you know, I, I would like to do this. And I think if your job is that you're looking to get is something that you really want to do, that you really like to do, it's a lot easier to see it as something other than a job. It's a lot easier to see it as, as a, a good alternative to lying on the beach all day. <laughs> so to me, it was, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to become a police officer and go, go through the Academy. And, uh, um, and, you know, the Academy had, had different ideas about whether I could become a police officer and go through the Academy at 19. So that, that led to a lot of headbutting in the Academy. 
So, so let's reflect on that for a moment and tell us, what did you learn about yourself during that time? And in, in this career process, you're young, you're going in, you're butting heads with people because it's a developmentally appropriate, by the way, Judge. It's developmentally appropriate at that age that you're having some adjustment issues in them. So, so as you reflect upon that, what did you learn about yourself? Well, the, I think the butting of heads was because they felt there's no way this 19-year-old is going to survive on the streets of Miami. And they wanted to, they wanted to knock me out of the academy. You know, they looked at me and said, oh, no, no, this, you know, there, you got some really bad people in Miami on like any major city, you know, it's like taking a 19 year old and throwing them into, you know, New York City PD in, in some of the, some of the areas there, you, you, you get eaten alive. So they would get the, the training advisor in the academy would get in my face and, you know, yell and scream and really come down on every chance they got to try to get me to quit. And I don't quit. I just don't. So I just, you know, kept going and kept going. And when we got to the firearm section, I was uh, second to the best shot in the class by, uh, uh, I think it was one point. Like he had 296, I had 295. And uh, so uh, in, in academics, I was second to the top guy in academics by eight one thousandths of a point uh i was i was in the top of the class physically so i didn't get the top of it top uh education i didn't get the top firearm but i got the most outstanding which is actually the highest award they they give uh which was great because i proved them wrong you know they they were coming at me with all barrels and i showed them i could do it man you sure could do it um so when i hear people left the police department after all that you went through you know, my ears kind of perk up. I'm wondering, what was the turning point for you? What changed your direction at that point? I, I don't know that there was any turning point. I loved police work, and I still, I still love, I still miss it. I mean, I, if I could go back tomorrow and do police work, I would, uh, because I got a, a real sense of of gratification as a police officer. I really enjoyed helping people. You know, I mean, nobody calls the police uh, to come over and, uh, you know, visit because they're having a birthday party. They call you because something's gone horribly wrong and they need your help. And I always got a lot of personal satisfaction out of being the one who showed up and helped. And so I felt good about that. I was going to school. I was going to school during the day or, or it, as a police officer, an undergrad, it rotated. So I would sometimes have a night shift and I would take classes during the day. And then the next semester, they had changed my shift and put me on days and I would look at the school and the classes I needed to take were not available at night. So then I had to look at another school and transfer over to the other school so I could take classes at night so I wouldn't you know, fall behind. And that's how I, I made it through undergrad. And then when I finished, I just thought, you know, I did so well in law in the academy and I really like it. I like the law aspect of law enforcement. And I'll bet I probably would do well and enjoy law school. That was, that was it. That was the whole self-analysis of, do I want to be a lawyer? <laughs> so so I, I went and applied and I got into the University of Miami School of Law and I continued working. Although they do the first semester of the first year, the bar requires that you not work, which makes sense because it is a beast of a semester. Um, but then after that, I was working nights and going to law school during the day. And 
And I would, as Susie pointed out in her, so well in her opening, I would put on my uniform, go to work, <laughs> patrol until four o'clock, take off my uniform, put on, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the opposite. I'd go to school, go to class all day till four o'clock, get out, put on my uniform and patrol until midnight, and then go home, go to sleep and be back in class at 8 a.m. And if I arrested somebody late, I, I was going to bed at 2, 2.30. Uh, and I still had to be in class the next morning. And that's the way I, I went through law school. I never had a day off. You know, my days off in the police department were Thursday, Friday, which would normally be good days off. But I had law school Thursday, Friday. So I had school all day long. And then Saturday, which was the days I didn't have law school, I had police work. So, you know, when I got out of law school, I, I tell people when I got out of law school, I was like, I get two days off every week. <laughs> it was just such a shocker that I, not just one day, I get two whole days off every week when I hadn't had a day off in years. That's the way I kind of, I, I kind of worked through law school, stumbled through, as I said, I, I do something until I want to do something else. And it was, as you pointed out, my father's advice, don't give up, that has allowed me to stumble through life that way, do something until I want to do something else. And to be a lawyer until I wanted to be a judge, and to be a judge until I wanted to be a TV judge. So it was, you know, those all those opportunities come from your educational base. You know, if you're, if you have this much education, then, you know, your opportunities are over here. If you have that much education, now your opportunities are all over here. You have so much, so many more things you can do. So you became the youngest judge on Miami's circuit court and the first Cuban-American lawyer ever elected to the circuit court bench. Yeah. You tried some significant cases, and you then, but I want to stop there and say, how did your experience as a police officer inform you becoming a judge? Because you had a different mentality than what we know of a lot of policemen today. You, you, had, a, you had a mentality that was based on your grandfather's reputation, his relationships, based in helping and so now you become a judge. How did that inform you becoming a judge? Well, the first thing that happened, of course, was I became an attorney. And I we just, we just breezed right past that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when I became an attorney, I pretty quickly realized that it was not the kind of career I wanted to have my entire life because I did not feel that gratification. I didn't feel that that personal satisfaction that I felt being a police officer. I was very good at what I did. I, certainly, it was very lucrative, much more money than I made as a police officer. I think eventually when I became a judge at the age of 34, a circuit judge, and I think the closest one in age to me was probably 40, 41, something like that, maybe. I don't know. I was definitely the youngest. When I became a judge, I, I took a 60% pay cut to be a judge. So being a lawyer... And being, and being a judge, of course, was much more lucrative than being a police officer. So being a lawyer, I did well. It just wasn't personally gratifying because I was always fighting somebody's battle, whether I agreed with it or not. It's an adversarial system. Now, luckily, I had very good clients. Uh, my clients were fantastic. And, you know, they, they were, you know, there's a lot of companies out there I wouldn't want to represent as their lawyer because you're, you're their hired gun and you, you know. You, there's a lot of things that companies do that you don't agree with and you don't want to be a part of doing it. But that, that's basically as a lawyer, you are, you are a hired gun. You, you know, our system is adversarial. This side presents this 
argument, the side presents this argument, and it's up to the, the jury or the finder of fact to decide what they side with. So I just didn't have that satisfaction that I had as a police officer. So I started looking around, and I, I, I thought, I'll, I'll bet being a, a judge is, is very gratifying because you're always trying to do the right thing within, within the constraints of the law. And I was right. So I, I set my sights on, on being a judge. I applied a couple times when vacancies came up between elections. And um, I guess the general outlook was you're too young. So I said, well, then I'll run. And I, I ran and I ran against two tough opponents. One was a sitting judge who, you know, it's tough to beat an incumbent. It's really tough. Incumbents get the support of all the lawyers who are afraid to not support them, even if they're not a good judge. And he wasn't. And a lawyer who had been practicing since I was eight years old. And he made that very well known. He took out commercials pointing that out. I beat them both by a landslide, really. I, I ran on the fact that I do have a police background. And I pointed out that, you know, I've been there when people have been victimized. And I've seen what the effects are on them. And, and I've seen the defendant before the defendant is all cleaned up and presented in the way that the defense lawyer wants to present him. So my argument was basically, look, it's going to be hard to snow me. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to, I'm going to do what's right, but I'm not going to be suckered. So the public obviously liked that about me. And I, uh, in the primary, which is typically where most judicial races end because they're, they're done before the general election, I received 6.4% of the vote. The closest one to me received 33. That was the lawyer and the judge received like 20. I don't know if my math is right, but so if I'd gotten just three and a half percent more votes, I wouldn't have even had a runoff. I would have beat them both in the primary. And then in the general election where judicial elections are typically decided by a couple of thousand votes, uh, in some cases, a couple of hundred, uh, I, I won by 80,000 votes. So it was it set me to where nobody wanted to run against me in the next election because I had proven my mettle. Uh, you know, people who are going to run generally like to you know, challenge somebody who's never been tested, maybe has been appointed and the voters had never voted yet and or barely squeaked by. It set me up on a, on a good path as far as future elections. Well, it sure did. And then you were the only ca applicant to have been unanimously recommended to Florida's governor by the judicial nominating commission out of 60 well-respected judges and lawyers. And instead, you chose a TV show. Talk about that. <laughs> right. Being an appellate judge is really the peak of, of the career in the legal community for many lawyers and judges. And I always refer to it as the elephant's graveyard because it's like where judges go to die. You know, <laughs> once, once they go there, they don't leave. They stay there. And so very rarely do you get a vacancy. And I, now I've been on the bench now for 10 years, nine of them in criminal, which is grueling. Um, every day you're hearing horrible crimes being committed, you know, over and over and over again. And it, it really, it really affects you. And so I'd been uh, one year in family or a little over a year in family and nine years in criminal. And I was ready to do something different, just like I had been ready to do something different when I decided to, to become a lawyer after years as a police officer. And so I, I saw that there were three vacancies on the appellate bench, which is unheard of because of the low turnover. And so I said, well, let me go ahead and apply. My feeling being, I won't love it as much as trial work. 
because I compare it to being a detective as opposed to a patrol officer. I enjoyed the excitement of being a patrol officer. When the emergency happens, you have to jump into high gear, you have to deal with it, and then your stress level goes down over the next hour or whatever. It was the same in trial court. You had to deal with rulings and objections like immediately. And the appellate judges were like the detectives. They came in later, they looked at everything, they pontificated, they <laughs> right? So I said, I'm not gonna love it, but it's it's a good stepping stone for if I decide to leave the bench, I will have this experience and you know, big firms would really appreciate that. And I was ready for a change. So I put my name in and it's a very, very competitive process. You're going against other judges and, and partners at law firms who are seeking a appellate court seat. But I was the only one that came out of the commission with nine unanimous votes. The others all got seven yes, two no, six yes, three no. Uh, so I had that going in my favor, heading towards an interview with Jeb Bush, who I, I had met before. He is probably the only governor who will have made such a substantial impact as far as putting minorities on the on the court bench in in Florida. Um, when I became a, a judge in Miami, there were 119 judges between circuit court and county court. There were 119 judges. Miami was 52% Hispanic, something like that. Out of those 119, seven were Hispanic, four were African-American. It was ridiculous. The bench was primarily old white men. That's just what it was. And uh, he made it a point to appoint nothing but minorities and women to the bench to balance it out for all the years he was governor. That was his focus. I mean, I know, I know another judge who was very qualified, very talented, very smart, but he was a white male and it took him 11 tries to get on the bench and he belonged there. He did belong there, but I understood what the governor was doing because there was a huge inequity on the, on the bench. So I knew that Jeb Bush uh, really appreciated promoting minorities. And I of course was born in Cuba. Um, I'd come out of the commission with nine unanimous votes. He was very pro law enforcement. I'm a former police officer and he's had time to see me on the bench because I've been a judge for 10 years. So he knows, he can see what my temperament is like and how well I handle the courtroom and the cases. So it looked really good going into the interview. And then I got a call about this show that 20th Television, the syndication branch of Fox was doing, and they were interested in me as a judge. And that's how I ended up meeting Susie. Uh, so it was a major in the road. It was literally uh, a few weeks or, or so before my interview with the governor. And they didn't want me, once we, we I, I met the people at Fox and, and they were wonderful, 20th Television, and I decided to do it. They didn't want me to publicize. They didn't want me to say anything. And I, I, I told them, I said, look, if I don't say something, my, whoever was next in line behind me is not going to get a shot at the appellate bench. And I should announce that I'm withdrawing my name so that they can promote that person to my vacancy. And that ultimately, that's what happened. That person, that person who never would have got a shot, a former U.S. attorney, ended up getting appointed to the Third District Court of Appeals because I insisted on withdrawing my name. But once I withdrew my name, the rumors were rampant. Oh, my God, he's got 
cancer. He must be dying. You know, it's like, why would you withdraw your name? You're the front runner in, in an appellate seat. And I couldn't tell them why. So that was an awkward period. So how many years did the TV show run? The TV show ran for nine years okay. in syndication, which means uh, they, uh, 20th Television produced it to sell to anybody who wanted it in the country. Even though they're the, they work with Fox, they offered it to Fox, and Fox could buy it for their own stations they own, but CBS bought it for the stations that they own as well that didn't overlap, and then my network bought it. and it, So it was, in a, for many years, it was in about 96% of the U.S., Wow, and it's still it will probably still be on, except Twentieth Television got out of the business of creating shows for syndication. They still sell them, but they stopped creating them. I don't know if they've gone back to it, but once they did, then uh, that was the end of my show. the The actual station group for Fox had to decide if they wanted to pick up any of the shows. So, what do you want future judges to know? What's the most important piece of information you want to bestow upon them? I think they already know. It's just a question of whether they do it or not. Your political views should have absolutely nothing to do with your judicial rulings. Whether you're a conservative or you're liberal, you shouldn't be trying to create policy from the bench. If you want to do that, then resign and run for the legislature. That's why we have the separation of the different branches of government. You know, if, if you want to make law and you want to go and create policy, then you should be a legislator. You shouldn't be a judge. And unfortunately, I see judges on both sides that, you know, want to want to influence the law rather than enforce it. So where can people find you now? Where are you these days? I'm hiding as much as possible. <laughs> um, no, I do. I listen, I do a lot of different things. I, you know, I created Whistleblower with my friend Ted Eccles, who's a fantastic uh, producer, and, and we sold it to CBS. We're trying to get that back on now because it's, it's been off the air during COVID. CBS has it sitting on a shelf, so I wish they would do it or sell it, uh, you know, because it's a fantastic show. And if, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to, you know, just pick up the uh, Par Paramount Plus uh, subscription of $5 or whatever it is and watch all 14 episodes of it. <laughs> You're going to like it. You really will. I, 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 I'm always eager to uh, to do another court show. I would love to do it because I really enjoyed doing that. But I don't know if there's anybody out there with interest in court shows. I see some of the court shows on TV and go, oh, we were so much better than that. <laughs> so much better than that. But I just don't, I think everybody, you know, the television is like a flock of birds. You know, one bird turns and the whole flock turns. And, and you know, it's it's they don't have an independent thought. So all of a sudden you get one, uh, who wants to be a millionaire and, and, oh, it's game shows. And then everybody has to come out with their new game shows. Or it's Oprah comes out and she's a hit. And it's like, oh, it's female talk show host. And you get Ricky Lake, you get Sally Jesse Rep. No, it was Oprah. She was special. <laughs> so um, I, I, I still welcome television. I love doing television. I've stopped doing a lot of the commentary because it's so political uh, that, you know, no matter what you say, you alienate half the country. And I still have my own law firm. I've got two lawyers and three paralegals and a bunch of legal assistants, but we very narrow niche. We help people get out of uh, debt from small debt to massive debt. We've got clients who have a quarter of a million dollars of debt um, and it's gratifying. So I got, I got to keep that part of it. And it allows me when I'm doing television to travel all over the country and work and uh, film and, you know, not not interrupt uh, my other business. No retirement is what I hear you saying. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, I, I, I do slow down because, I, as I said, I've, I have two lawyers and a few paralegals and a bunch of legal assistants that can keep my firm running. So, you know, if I want to take a break or go out boating in Miami, I, I, I can leave it in their hands and it's fine. It's fine. But um, uh, I, I don't have plans to retire. No, I'd, I'd like I, I wasn't pushing you to. I was just <laughs> I'd like to do some I'd like to do some more in television. I'd like to maybe one day try acting, but I, I've never, never tried that. Never. Oh, now you put it out in the universe. It's going to happen. You yep. think? <laughs> okay. So one last question for you. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your life with us. Very oh, interesting. Thank, thank you for the very thoughtful questions. Oh, you're welcome. So, you know, it's, we're all about changing the narrative here. And so I'm wondering, what do you think the country needs to do to change the narrative? I, I am... I am probably not the one you want to ask that. I'm, I'm, it's your opinion. I, you have a right to it. I, I'm a big believer that what people are consuming in the 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 media out there on 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 either side is it, it's being basically fed to them for ratings, and unfortunately, it's dividing our country. You know, you've got the the media on one side saying, you know, Democrats are evil and they want to take your money and they they you know they want to give it to people who don't want to work. And you got the other side saying, you know, Republicans are evil and they're they they don't want you to have anything and they want to hoard everything for themselves. And and it's it's being driven, I believe, because once we went to a corporate media structure where the media has to feed itself through ratings. You know, at, rather than it being a money loser like it used to be uh, attached to your daily news. Mm -hmm. And now once you came up with cable news, well, that's the only thing they do. So they have to depend on eyeballs. So I think that the media then became driven to make those eyeballs come back day after day. And what does that is scare people or get them angry. And they'll come at, back tomorrow to hear more of the same. And unfortunately, I think it's doing this to the country, you know, and most of the Democrats and Republicans I know differ only in small issues they generally agree among the you know, spectrum on many many things or most things but they might differ on pro-life or pro-choice or they might differ on immigration or whatever but you know if you hear if you listen to the news it's demonizing your neighbor mm -hmm. and it's making people hate somebody who's not you know thinking exactly the way do they do and I think that's I think that's horrible. And I don't know what the end to it is, but I, I just I see them do this and it just drives me crazy that they're, you know, I think they do it to line their pockets, but I think they're destroying the country when they do it. I don't know what the answer is because I don't know what your other choice is. Go on social media for news. That's just as horrible, if not worse. But you know, I don't I don't know of any real any source that I say 100% straight news, not trying to spin it. I wish, I wish the news stations, I wish the news networks were required to identify the program as news or commentary. I don't think they could, but if they could, then people would go, okay, so I'm going to tune this out because this is just this guy's opinion and yeah. uh, whatever. But I don't think they could because I think news today is so blended with opinion that no, no matter what, you're going to you're going to get the news with the opinion and with whatever slant, you know, that particular network wants its viewers to hear. So that's the biggest thing I think is a threat to us. And I don't know. 
I don't know the way to fix it. You don't have to know how to fix it. We appreciate your perspective, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at IM Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IMMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.